Drax is the largest provider of renewable electricity in the UK and plays a critical role in ensuring a secure energy system. The company has plans to invest billions in new infrastructure, such as bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, which will create thousands of jobs, whilst also delivering the energy needed by homes and businesses up and down the UK. Discover more at Drax.com. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots of Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Rupert Darwell, the author of Green Tyranny and senior fellow of the Real Clear Foundation in Washington. It's fair to say there was some panic both in the Tory party and beyond ahead of Rishi Sunak's speech yesterday. The BBC's leak uh, set the cat amongst the pigeons and Tory MPs started to worry about what the Prime Minister might say. In the end, Rishi Sunak confirmed reports that he was planning to push back the ban on petrol vehicles until 2035, so that's a five-year delay, and also to ease the ambition when it comes to phasing out boilers. Fraser, what struck you most from the speech? It wasn't so much the headline announcements. I mean, to align Britain to a 2035 deadline for phasing out new petrol cars, as opposed to a 2030 one that Boris Johnson made up from the top of his head, isn't that um, damaging, isn't that significant. Everybody knew the 2030 deadline was a joke. We simply don't have a charging apparatus to support a country where where the government's going to ban people from buying new petrol-based cars. It would have been difficult in most of England, let alone in the Scottish Highlands, where I'm from. So, and then set aside the fact that by 2030, China's um, electric cars will be a lot cheaper than ours. So we would risk pretty much um, decimating a good chunk of our own industry and handing it over to um, heavily subsidised Chinese imports. 2030 was never going to work, and this was simply reality adjusting. But what's got everybody so angry is that the language that Rishi Sunak used, he was applying a cost-benefit analysis. He was saying that this, the environmental gain for a 2030 ban was not worth the economic pain. Now, this has never been done before, because typically the language of net zero has to be talk, talking about the pros, but never mentioning the cons. It's been about what's called the precautionary principle, not about the traditional cost-benefit analysis. Now, this cuts to the core of who Rishi Sunak is as a politician. He's a man who believes in trade-offs. This is his religion. He believes fundamentally that a politician, to selling a policy to the country, must say, this is what I want to achieve, but this is what it's going to cost, this is the downsides. I believe the upsides are more than the downsides, but I'm going to not hold anything back from you. It drove him mad how Boris Johnson would always talk about the upsides and never talk about the downsides. You could talk about hitting net zero in 2050. Who wouldn't want to do that? It sounds like a great thing, but never mentioning what it's going to do to your energy bill, never really mentioning the um, £170 pool tax, which is being applied to your energy bills right now and how fair that is. There's a whole bunch of stuff that isn't discussed inside Parliament because of this consensus around net zero. As Nigel Lawson pointed out in the House of Lords, wherever there's a consensus, the biggest mistakes are going to be made because policies are never properly scrutinised. Sunak is now single-handedly applying that scrutiny in a way that nobody really has until now. And there's a lot of people out there, and corporates especially, the subsidy junkies who have been doing very well, thank you, out of the previous net zero regime, who are not welcoming this idea of policies being put to a new test. Are you getting bang for your buck? Is this worth the pain that we're inflicting on the public? And by the way, let's be honest, as Sunak was saying in his press conference, about this is going to cost people five, ten, fifteen thousand pounds to do some of these upgrades that are being considered. So to actually say that bit out loud 
is something no senior politician on either party has really done before. Sunak has broken the spell, and a lot of people like it, not one bit. Rupert, you commented yesterday that it appears to be an end to cakeism when it comes to net zero. Tell us more. Yeah, I agree with Fraser. I think this is an incredibly uh, significant moment in British politics because what Rishi Sunak has done is broken the climate omerta, the net zero omerta, which is that you shall never talk in public about possible downsides from net zero. Net zero is, as Chris Skidmore, who was the uh, net zero czar at one point, net zero is the economic opportunity of the 21st century. Rishi Sunak is implicitly rejecting that because he's saying there are downsides to net zero. We have to look into people's eyes and level with them about the costs and hardships we're asking them to bear. And that completely alters the debate on climate policy. And Rupert, what about the other way of looking at it, which we've heard from the Labour Party and also some members in the Tory party, such as Boris Johnson, which is... What Rishi Sunak has done is bad for business and therefore bad for the UK. It's bad for investment. It sends a wrong message because he has delayed uh, you know, a decision that lots of business plans have made around and that is an irresponsible thing to do. Do you think there's some merit to that thinking? I was very taken by the statement by uh, the chairman of Ford UK because right at the end of the state of her statement, it talked about this is a time of this is a cost of living crisis. The infrastructure is not there, which are both reasons to put back the ban on petrol and diesel diesel cars. And I think what what people don't understand when they're talking about EVs is they're thinking the focus has been on the driver experience, uh, the extra cost of EVs, the fact that they take longer to charge, range anxiety and all those kind of things. But what is not... what has not been focused on is the implications of the electrical grid. And to give you an idea, it costs 20 times, 20 times cheaper in an oil pipeline and a tanker than it is through the electrical grid. Molecules are cheaper to transport than electrons. And upgrading Britain's electrical grid will cost tens of billions, perhaps £100 billion. And who is going to pay for that? That is now a question Labour needs to answer. Who is going to fund this colossal investment requirement for mass EV adoption? Now, Fraser, there are some MPs in blue wall seats who I've spoken to this morning who are concerned. They think that this could be interpreted as... Rishi Sunak ditching the whole agenda and and actually interesting they don't have a problem with uh, you know the specific measures it's just a concern that it could look as though the Tories are going back on their climate commitments and then that will help uh, you know the Lib Dems potentially Labour can you see their way of thinking? I think those MPs have spent too long in Westminster. When you go outside it, the idea that either you sign up to everything or nothing is just a joke. When, I think Sunak is starting to make this argument, and again, because nobody's spoken rationally about net zero before, these aren't things... Again, because so few people have spoken rationally about net zero, it's not an argument we're used to making. For example, Britain is making the best progress in the G20 on decarbonisation, and even if you include what we're importing, it's the second best progress. There's no real 
moral question about resigning from our incredible environmental progress. Um, the air in London, for example, has never been purer. It's, um, I think uh, we have got a graph in the Spectator Data Hub which shows that even in the medieval times, the air pollution was something like 20 times greater than it is now. So there is so much to be proud of, and we are on such a good trajectory, but we're being driven in this trajectory, not by government decisions, but by a combination of capitalism, innovation, tech, consumer choices, all of these things are putting Britain through a golden era of decarbonisation. That's why our per capita carbon output is down to levels not seen since the 1850s. So I think any Tory blue wall voters concerned about people saying that Sunak's given up on the planet would find that accusation quite easy to counter by listing the many, many, many ways in which progress is happening at a faster pace than any other country. And we can do this without taxing the poor out of the sky and off the road. That's all he's saying. Yeah, I think the what Sunak's intervention showed, or what it, it shows he has both courage and conviction, because he would have known what he was taking on in the climate lobby, who basically succeeded but through intimidation. If you step out of line, we're going to come after you rhetorically and so forth. And he has, he's got the conviction, he's on top of the, of the subject, and he went out there, he went with front foot forward, and... He's, cha- he's changed the debate. This is Sunakism, trade-offism, having frank conversations about the costs and benefits. And if applied, there's lots of bubbles around Whitehall which are just waiting to be burst. Um, so I think we can see some, expect some trimming of the HS2 project. Of course, the treble lock for pensions is the massive cost to this country, which is demographically... Um, unjustified, it's an intergenerational unfairness. But I think that might be a bridge too far for the Conservatives because they do, after all, have older voters to bribe ahead of the next election. But logically, it should go there next. And then you can look at um, the NHS structure. There is a big conversation to be had there um, about what exactly the public's getting in return for the money. But I suspect that Sunak is more likely to go for... um, other areas, take welfare reform, for example, and how many people are being written off as being unfit for any work. He's already trying to reform that, but he isn't quite draping this in the language of realism and trade-offs versus fairy tales. He should be, but he might come to do that. Perhaps he'll return to that debate that devotee lost in the House of Lords last week about planning reform. Um, and uh, so perhaps we can expect to see that coming back in the Queen's speech. And he's King's speech, sorry, I'll have to get used to this. And he, he might say, this is that realistically, we need to build more in this country, and that means um, going forward and defeating Labour uh, over this. And perhaps others smaller projects. Take, for example, the idea of expanding the city of Cambridge to open a new quarter, uh, which is Cambridge is surrounded by Greenbelt. You might think, okay, let's talk about this pros and cons. It's time to significantly increase Cambridge. So you might be relatively small things. But to be honest, what interests me more is this rhetorical and political device, which he has now unleashed. Thank you, Rupert. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening.